Welcome to CII Podcasts. Dr. Ghosh is an international public policy expert, an author, columnist, and an institution builder. He's the founder CEO of Council of on Council on Energy, Environment, and Water, and has led CEW from an idea to what it is today, which is one of the premier institutes in Asia on climate and sustainability. And Arunaba, what can I say? I've had the pleasure of knowing that time when this was just an idea. Uh, and I want to take you back to that time. I think we're talking now 2009, 2010. Um, and you were here sort of toying with the idea of setting up an institution for research on climate uh, in India. And at that point in time, everyone thought, oh, this is so far away. This is so futuristic. Um, and, you know, here we are today where India has a net zero target. India has led formation of Solar Alliance, out of, for which you are duly credited. Uh, and rightfully so. And then there is the future. So I actually want to ask you, how does it feel from where you were in 2010, where we are now, uh, also as a country? And also, where do you see us uh, at India at 100 in 2047? First of all, Bhairavi, thank you so much for having me as part of this conversation. I'm extremely privileged. I've known about CII's India at 75 initiative for a long time. I've been part of some of these deliberations in the past, uh, but it's, uh, you know, we are now literally at that moment, just a few days away from India at 75. So if you want me to go back to the past, I want to reflect back when India was 50 and I was still in college. And uh, I remember, you know, the, this, uh, a, a lot of the, uh, 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 there, was a, uh, there was a sense of upbeat, um, of course, there were crises to deal with, etc. But the one thing that was not on anyone's mind at all was sustainability. Um, but a whole more than a decade later, when I was con contemplating coming back to India, um, I I asked myself this one question. You know, it's not just about you know is climate change something far out, but there was also this dominant narrative it's not our problem it is someone else has created the problem someone else got to fix it and we've just got to do what we already are doing and i felt something had to change um not because one has to be necessarily a tree hugger but one has to look at what the future will look like and what i tell my colleagues regularly here at cew is that the only way to predict the future is to shape it and when I, so you asked me, you know, how does it feel? I certainly am extremely excited, not just by the journey that India has traversed over the last a little more than a decade, but also where we are headed. Um, because it's a combination of not just policy announcements, but also where technology is moving, where investments are flowing, where new jobs are coming uh, together. And of course, the international leadership, we are already demonstrating and can demonstrate more. So when we ask ourselves a question like, uh, you know, has the needle moved? I think the needle has certainly moved and it has moved well more than a few seconds. It has, it has moved in the right direction. The question now for all of us is, have we internalized ourselves this unfolding economic transformation? And have we internalized that to capitalize on it, we've got to be part of that revolution. So tell me if you were to think um, 25 years ahead now, right? 2047, India is at 100. So, you know, 50, 75, 100. 
what is the dream you would have for India at 100 in the context of sustainability and climate and the planet itself? I have actually thought about it a few months ago, so I'm going to it's, uh, I'm going to say it. Um, I my dream is that the daughter of a coal miner, born when India is 75, is celebrated as a clean energy billionaire when India turns 100. Wow, that's that that is that articulation has so much in it um, because it. It addresses the socio-economic aspects very, very beautifully. So thank you for putting it so simply. Um, but what are the necessary steps for us to get to the point where daughter of a coal miner will become a climate energy billionaire, right? Like what are those steps that we need to take as an industry, as society, as government, and as individuals? Because at the end of the day, all of this adds up to what narrative we want to see happen. Indeed, it is that narrative that, that that's very important because ultimately, you know, what is a society? It is built around narratives. It's built around common ideals. It's built around common vision um, because that's the basis on which our identities then get constructed. And I don't mean this just in an abstract way. What is the narrative we need going forward? I believe that we the mantra that we all need to now champion is the mantra of jobs, growth and sustainability. And if you think about it, either as a policymaker, as a politician, as an entrepreneur or as a professional, one could one could be excused for imagining this to be an impossible trinity. We could think, well, you know, Sometimes jobs and sustainability is possible. Sometimes growth and jobs are possible, but not sustainability. But it's really hard to get all three. And the reason we believe that is because we have nothing to hark back to. There is no country on the planet that has actually delivered jobs, growth and sustainability simultaneously. And that's why we believe that that is also the only path available to us. But I also believe that the biggest thing holding us back is the failure of imagination. So when we think that, is it possible to imagine an India at 100 where the daughter of a coal miner is a clean energy billionaire? We are talking about putting livelihoods at the front and center of everything we do. By the time India is 76, we will be the most populous country on the planet. So we cannot take livelihoods out of the equation. And it's not just that there are 12 million people entering the workforce every year. It's also about what are the jobs you have today and will those jobs be available to you in future? If you are a worker in an automobile industry today, do you expect to be exporting uh, uh, manufacturing cars in 2030 or in 2035 or 2040? Yes. But do you think we can export internal combustion engine cars to, say, Central Europe um, in 2040? The answer is certainly no. If you think about what will make our bridges, our buildings, our airports, we will need steel. But do you think that the process with which we will make steel in 2035 
or in 2040 or 2047 will be the same as we used in 1890? Most certainly not. And therefore, the question is not really that this is how do we solve for this impossible dream. The question is how quickly do I take pole position in the new arenas and the new jobs that are going to get created? Again, not because one has to only care about the environment to feel that way, but that is where technology is heading. That is where investment is heading. To put your to 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 put uh, to answer your question simply, I see these as four legs of a stool. We need the policy targets to give clarity to industry. This is where we are headed. Prime Minister Modi has talked about the 2070 net zero because he's also given 2030 targets. So this is the direction India is headed. We will need to know what are the best technologies today, but we also have to start co-developing the technologies of the future. We will need to create a financial ecosystem that then crowds in large volumes of institutional capital from within and outside the country. And finally, we'll have to leverage behavior change, not just as turning off the tap, but as a genuine growth driver for circular economy. These, I believe, will be the four big pillars or legs of the stool around which this vision can be fulfilled. You know, I was reading somewhere uh, that there was a survey done by SAP and Qualitrix a couple of mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, a basket of 30 countries. And from those surveyed, uh, Indians came out to be the largest believers in the science on climate change. Mm -hmm. um, at 86% compared to, say, Japanese at 25% and Russians at 23 and Americans at 40-something. When you go to some of these and you, you attend COPs and uh, you're there in these multilateral forums, do you see that? Do you feel that as a people we are more ready, more willing? Or do you see that we are, uh, you know, because a lot of times, especially at the last COP, India was kind of, you know, uh, pointed out in terms of because we didn't kind of commit in terms of where the coal offsets were. But, you know, from people perspective, do you think that uh, what the SAP Qualitrix survey shows has merit? I think it certainly has merit because we don't need to go to COP to recognize that. Wherever you yourself spend a lot of time in our fragile Himalayan ecosystem. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, arid, semi-arid places where our, our, our farmers are practicing agriculture. Uh, if you ask them, uh, is the climate changing? They might not be able to give you big graphics about, you know, concentrations of greenhouse gases. But what they will tell you repeatedly is that it is becoming harder and harder to predict the weather. Right? It is this asantulan, this imbalance in what they understood the nature to be and their local ecosystem to be. That is a real on-ground manifestation of what the climate crisis means. Now, this is not just anecdotal memory. When CW uh, is developing uh, the first high-resolution climate risk atlas for, uh, for, for a country like India. Now, we already know that 75% of our districts are now hotspots for extreme climate events like floods, droughts, cyclones, and so forth. 
What is more troubling for me is that 40% of our districts are showing signs of swapping, means what was traditionally flood prone is now becoming drought prone and vice versa. So if you were a district administrator in a flood prone district where the institutional legacy is about building embankments, how do you suddenly transform yourself into being the person who has to deliver solutions to deal with a sudden drought? Now imagine you were an industrialist and you were thinking about putting up a major plant along the coast. Now you say, okay, the eastern seaboard gets hit by cyclones every year. So I prefer the western seaboard. And then suddenly you notice that we have cyclones emerging in the Arabian Sea. They used to not emerge in the Arabian Sea when we were growing up. So now how do you ensure your major investment of say $100 million or $300 million with hard capital infrastructure going in when you don't have a granular sense? So talk to a small and marginal farmer or talk to a billionaire capitalist. We're all at the pun intended coal face of the climate crisis. So we don't need to go to the cops to realize that this is happening. Yeah, no, what I mean is that sometimes I, you know, you see in, in the in the debates that happen and maybe those are more publicly available in some of the Western countries about pro pro-climate legislator and commentary mm -hmm. around that mm -hmm. and in, a, in an interesting way I was talking to somebody in Germany and they said you know but for all your climate talk in India you don't have a green party and my answer was we don't need a green party everybody believes in green on all sides of the aisle so how how do you think how ready are our legislators whether it's at the state level or at the union level to sort of accept the science of climate change and also kind of legislate uh, constructively towards helping us move in that direction. Yes. Where, you know, that, what you talk indeed. about becomes a reality. Indeed. Uh, and, and that's really well put, Barry, because then you're not relying on one party or one coalition of parties that is technically green and the rest are brown or black. What we have is that we don't have climate deniers. That's a great base to start from. Right. In general, we don't have climate deniers amongst our legislators. But there lived experience of climate change will vary if they're coming from a flood district or a drought district or a farming district or an industrial district. So what do we need? We need to help them understand a little better the granular ways in which climate risks will manifest. And they should then start articulating that in their language, in their metaphors, in their vernacular, because they will need the what I call the political sustainability for sustainability. They will need to demonstrate or realize that it's not just a national level target on solar or on green hydrogen, but something more granular that will win them votes. Which is why I talked about jobs, which is why I talked about livelihoods. The second thing that has to happen, Mary, is that they need to they need to be shown a pathway where industry also comes in that should a legislation come should the policy reform come through should even a state government put out an even more aggressive policy say for net zero that there will be commensurate investment now this is where there are challenges that we face as a country now suppose i were a clean tech entrepreneur putting in a renewable energy plant and i have taken say a hundred million dollar debt 
in dollar in, in denominated in dollars and then the federal reserve in the us decides to increase rates it has nothing to do with india's climate policy nothing to do with the state level energy policy nothing to do with the fiscal financial health of the distribution companies certainly nothing to do with my balance sheet but we are all buffeted by that crisis because the rupee depreciates capital flows out and my dollar denominated debt servicing burden increases what did i do i did nothing i was trying to do good i had a good policy i had a state government that was trying to fix its discoms and yet capital has flown away and therefore the politician needs to be part of a solution with the industrialists but also with our international partners to find those de-risking platforms so that money can get can come in rather than flow out unfortunately unlike economics 101 where capital should flow from capital rich regions to capital poor regions and labor should flow in the other way we are certainly exporting our labor but capital continues to circulate in capital rich regions it does not flow to where the sun shines the most we got to fix that market failure you're telling me i mean it's like um you know i think one very important aspect of and it's a big challenge because that money isn't coming in and that is also sort of what stops us from getting more aggressive also as a country in what we want to pursue because we're not sure the capital needed for it is going to come our way or not mm-hmm. and so you know if you were to look at three aspects one well, of course and I'll come to jobs because I want to save that for last but sure. you know there's finance there's technology we talked about policy mm-hmm. do you think there are opportunities to and i see like that but i don't know about you that there are opportunities to innovate different ways to fund this even if that money may or may not make it our way um and what are those uh, what are those instruments what are those economic systems that we need to kind of tinker to be able to have uh, that kind of flow of finance towards a climate friendly um industrial path Look, let let me talk about technology initially right uh so you know a couple of years ago i co-chaired the uh, the energy and climate track of our new science technology and innovation policy it was the only the fifth time since independence that india was drafting such a policy and one of the things that we put out there was that look there are different there are different clusters of technology which require different kinds of financial support or de-risking and so forth there are technologies that we already know understand and that itself has taken a journey i remember in 2010 when cw was starting up and our national solar mission was starting up i would go talk to banks and say we don't understand solar now we moved a long distance away from there right uh, where we understand solar or we pv or we understand a wind turbine and we can deploy that but that requires basically as i said the de-risking against the non-project risks project risks let the entrepreneur handle but how do you deal with the non-project risks of the policy uncertainty or the health of the discom or the currency uh, fluctuations and so forth we need that but then we come into what we call foundational and breakthrough technologies foundational technologies that have applications across many industrial sectors so if you take uh, advanced materials if you take critical minerals 
Uh, you could be using critical minerals in a battery, you could be using it in mobility, you could be using it in green hydrogen electrolyzers, but you need to create a pooled fund for, from government and from industry to be able to create a revolving kind of uh, funding structure to incentivize the innovation, technological innovations there. And finally, for the breakthrough technologies, and then green hydrogen, and there, based on that green steel, how do you bring down the cost of green steel from $650 a ton to matching it with coal at $450 a ton, right? And then India becomes not just the second largest steel producer in the world, but the largest green steel producer in the world. That's the kind of imagination and vision we need to have. But to do that, we need a completely different structure, similar to say what the US did with ARPA-E, an advanced research projects agency for energy that will significantly de-risk these early foundational tech investments. Now, that brings us to the financing side. There are different types of financial players who can do these different types of investments. There are the regular banks, along with the multilateral development banks that can create the, and insurance companies that can create the de-risking platforms. There are specified government entities and risk-taking large, you know, industrial conglomerations can be, that can be looking at the foundational technologies. But for the breakthrough, we do need a very different structure, right? But if you think about it, it's not that much money. ARPA-E and its original investments spent only a billion and a half dollars. And it spawned more than 300 startups in clean tech in the United States. Now, are we saying a $3 trillion economy like ours and counting cannot afford a billion and a half dollars as early stage de-risking that then spawns a whole ecosystem of startups? Some capitalized by large conglomerates, but some garage operators as well, looking at these breakthroughs in the, in the clean tech market that we, that we seek to capture. Right? Once we start breaking this problem down, you see that there are investment opportunities at all stages, depending on your risk appetite. And if you don't have a risk appetite, there are ways to whet that appetite still. So that kind of brings me to the, the elephant in the room. India adds 13 million people to the job market. By 2030, we'll have the, we'll have 1 billion people of working age. And so therefore it is, it is both a boon and a bane. And how do you think how prepared we are in our in our education system to you know equip um, these young people to actually ride the opportunity wave of what what jobs you know a green growth is going to throw at them are we ready for it academically are we ready for it at the school level are we thinking about it even in terms of you know tweaking policies that do you find that there is readiness i mean i need a lot of young people who now want to work in this but many leave the country because they can't find um, the kind of education that they are looking for in the field. So, where do you think that is, and where do you where would you like to see it in in the coming two and a half decades? Let me uh, let me illustrate this with an anecdote, Mary. Uh, a few months before the pandemic, I was giving a lecture at IIT Madras. Now, uh, traditionally, IIT Madras produced a lot of mechanical engineers who would then get absorbed in the neighboring um, automobile cluster that we have in Tamil Nadu. 
So um, at the end of that lecture, uh, some of these students walked up to me and they were uh, fourth year students, fourth year BTEC uh, students. And they say, you know, we are all mechanical engineering students. We, we joined four years ago and now we are on our job hunt. Unfortunately, we are realizing that all these automobile companies are now looking for computer science engineers, right? And, and it was not just one guy, several of them said the same thing to me. Now, of course, you're, whether you're a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, or computer science engineer from IIT, you're smart enough, right? But that one conversation illustrated to me that during just the four years of an undergrad engineering degree, their life chances have changed. Because suddenly a car has gone from being a car to being an iPad with wheels, right? And it's not because we are the world's leading EV manufacturer, but already the industry is sending a very different demand signal for the kind of skills. Now let's extrapolate this. We estimate, we at CW, along with our other research partners, we every one and a half to two years, we count the number of jobs created in renewables and our numbers get reported in parliament. The last number, set of numbers that were reported during a, a budget session suggested that we have more than 111,000 workers in, uh, in large-scale solar and wind. But by 2030, we could have a workforce of a million people, full-time equivalent jobs of well over three and a half to four million. Right? Uh, and 80% of those will come from distributed energy. If you look at green hydrogen, we can create a workforce of 1.9 million people over the next couple of decades. Just schooling, HVAC, cold chain uh, is another 2 million service technicians. Um, mobility, again, we're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs. The point I'm trying to make here is the sustainability transition is not just an energy transition. It is economic transformation. So your green job, so to speak, is not just a coal worker then becoming a solar worker. A green job is also a textile worker working in a cleaner textile plant. Where Zara is importing clothing from a company, that from a factory that is, you know, running on renewables. I would welcome you to visit CW's new sustainable office where the flooring we have is made of 100% biodegradable material. The carpeting has been manufactured in a plant that uses 100% renewable electricity. This is the big driver of, of, of new jobs. Now, are we ready for it? Certainly not. Are we producing millions of these skilled or semi-skilled people to capitalize on this? No. Is industry beginning to send some of that signal? Seems to be yes. But I would go well beyond the formal sector. Because we know in, in India, we have for the longest time hoped that overnight, somehow the 10% of population employed in the formal sector will overnight become 100% of the population. But maybe we've got to approach it differently. How does the informal sector also become sustainable? Our estimation is that using distributed renewables for livelihood activities, in rural India alone is a $53 billion market. That is the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. The famous phrase by CK Prahlad, from where this whole story of India at 75 emerged. 
Now, this is a new fortune at the bottom of the pyramid that we've not even begun to scratch the surface. So we decided, okay, we are analysts, maybe we are wrong. So let's put our hypothesis to the test. So we ourselves created a fund of $3 million and support are supporting six startups using distributed energy in rural areas. We are already with, for a three year program in the first one and a half years, we've already hit 60% of our targets in terms of beneficiaries, etc. But just think about it. green fodder using hydroponics, which use clean energy is a $4 billion market. Now that's not a formal sector of the economy. It's a $4 billion market to provide green fodder in a country where our cattle are eating plastic. So this is really where the jobs revolution will happen. It will not just happen in a green hydrogen electrolyzer plant, in an EV plant, in a renewables energy plant. It'll happen all over there, but it has to happen. It has seep through all sectors of the economy. So imagine I'm a student. Uh, I have just crossed high school and I'm very passionate about climate. I'm worried about it. What's going to happen in the future? And I want to do something about it. I want to study I want to later on build a career in it. What are the kind of career pathways I am looking at in the next 25 years as a young Indian? You know, Bhairavi, uh, the way I was, I mean, I have a daughter who's going to turn 10 later this year. And I think about it, you know, when when we get to net zero at 2070, uh, she will be approaching retirement age. Right? Um, so I think about what what is the future life of her in terms of livelihood, right? And I like to think of it as the intersection of three things. Um, I believe that the future will be increasingly decentralized. It will be increasingly digitalized and hopefully or imperatively, it has to be increasingly decarbonized. Now, we could now construct careers around or along these three vectors. What do I mean by decentralization? It's not about deglobalization. It is about a different way of thinking about supply chains. I mean, you are the logistics guru, right? So the point is, it's a different way of thinking about supply chains and decentralized production and consumption, even in large ecosystems where you're, you're making things which are more bespoke to the customer or the client. Right? Uh, similarly, the digital revolution which we are very much part of already as a country, opens up that many more opportunities for that first vector of decentralized production and consumption. And then if you bring in the third D of the decarbonization, carbonized economy, not just decarbonized electricity sector, then you're looking at, I could be an energy expert, or I could be a digital expert, or I could be an industry 4.0 expert, or I could be an agriculture 2.0 expert, or I could be a services 3.0 expert, right? But it's that decentralization that leverages the digital revolution, that leverages the way that a rooftop solar plant is all, not just uh, lighting up the lights and fans here, but is also charging the electric vehicles outside our gates, but is also then linked into a district cooling heating system which then is serving as an energy storage system for the larger grid 
which then is making money by exporting that energy or importing that energy in a regional setup right you are beginning to see the whole slew of opportunities and of course if all of that is then enveloped with advanced artificial intelligence then it becomes even more you're extracting even more value from any of these three vectors so i would not pick a sector i would pick clusters or vectors around along which these transformations will unfold and i believe that therefore the structure of education itself has to move beyond the subject lines of education to the the vectors of the economy or vectors of technology or particularly i at least this is what i tell college uh, students you got to you got to get together to solve problems stanford has just received from a billionaire uh, venture capitalist the largest ever donation 1.6 billion dollars to create a school of sustainability so it's not a school of engineering it's not a school of medicine it's not a school of energy it's not a school of law it's not a school of business it's a school of sustainability so if a if a billionaire venture capitalist sees that as the future okay maybe not one billionaire will devote give 1.6 billion dollars to one university in india but we can certainly envision that that way of bringing together the problem solving approaches towards i want to creator the next circular economy unicorn in india i want to make india the green steel powerhouse i want to make india the critical minerals powerhouse not by digging up more mines 40 recycling our e waste will yield 44% of our critical minerals demand so why dig up more mines in dr congo where there's a war going on or compete with chinese companies for the next mine in argentina why can't we create a circular economy of critical minerals in india and export those critical minerals from here wouldn't that be a more sustainable secure safe legitimate law abiding source of critical minerals for the whole world so those are the ways in which we've got to start imagining the construct of our economy our education our investment and of course you know our ambitions and aspirations as individuals there is a and i'm going to go very quickly to the audience questions that have come but there is a there is a framing that organizations like iucn and ipbs do which sort of give a framing that actually the climate crisis is major crisis and so there is this conversation around how is is our relationship with nature sort of uh not not on the best of the terms if you will um there is a there is a very big gap in that uh, sort of english that gets talked and then the like you said the people on the ground i live as you said in the himalaya and uh, people there think nature is divine and so when you try to tell them that nature is getting damaged by human beings their answer is but how can human beings endanger the divine but at the same time a lot of our legislation which we inherited after you know from the colonists Uh, was anthropocentric in its frame mm-hmm. at the same time we now also need to look at legislation that is going to allow this relationship to be mutually beneficial not just for the conservation of nature but also nature adding back to the livelihoods and growth of people 
where do you see is the role of um, new age entrepreneurs, uh, circular economy entrepreneurs, young people in shaping that reality for a lot of internet India? So I think the first uh, point which you were you know, referring to how you know, people think, how can we damage nature? I, I like to think of it in a slightly different way. Now, in a way, yes, what can we do to nature? You know, because nature has been there before and after, and we are actually part of it. We are in this geology, we're a, we're a blip in the geological sort of uh, story that is unfolding. I would say the biogeological story that is unfolding. So I like to think of it as it's not what just humans are doing to the planet. It is more what the planet will do to us. And it is most what we will do to each other. Settled human civilization, which is basically when cavemen started throwing seeds on the ground and became agriculturalists about 10,000 BC, has never experienced what we are in for. So our entire understanding of prehistory and history, of civilization, of religion, of philosophy, of arts, of culture, of industry, of materials, none of this has experienced what we're going to go through. Because concentrations of greenhouse gases are higher than they ever were, at least in the last three million years. And therefore, the way to create that opportunity or engagement is not to focus on just preventing what humans do to nature. It is about becoming more resilient against what nature will do to us and creating societal, economic and political structures that mitigate what we might do to each other. We are talking in 2022 when we have a global energy crisis going on, a global food crisis going on and a global financial crisis going on. This, these and we are in the third year of a global fever crisis going on. These four F's are all forming a perfect storm of shocks. So it's not really, I don't think it is helpful enough to either argue, are we too small and insignificant to impact nature or are we too dominant to don't care? It is the way to think about it is how do we mitigate what we do to each other? Once we create that framing, we ask ourselves, is our political system ready for the huge social tensions that will emerge? And yet is the economic system gearing up for the huge opportunities that are also there? Right? Then we start internalizing, you know, those abstract terms about internalizing the externality. What does that even mean? Is that a tax? Is that a carbon trade? No, it is realizing that your future lies somewhere else. Just like 150 years ago in Victorian England, you decided your future lies in getting educated. Not just being a farmer's son, being a farmer, you still have to get educated. It wasn't the most accepted thing that you have to go to school. It's our reality now, but it wasn't the case even 150 years ago. So our reality now has to change that there is no option but to be sustainable. And once you do that, you open up a whole slew of opportunities. So there are two questions. I'm going to take the second one first and go to the first one last. Um, the world is rapidly becoming resource scarce. 
how can we work together towards growth models in order to meet the aspirations of our youth? You kind of partly answered it, but I just wanted uh, the question answered from its own framing. You know, uh, I used to, in an earlier avatar, I used to write the human development reports uh, for UNDP out of headquarters. And uh, so this human development index that many of us are familiar with, right? When you map that with ecological footprint, it gives a very stark uh, reminder that we are completely on an unsustainable pathway. If we aspire to the human development levels in the United States with the kind of resource footprint they have, we would need about four to five planet Earths if all of us went there. If we aspired even to the Chinese approach, we would end up requiring at least two planet Earths. India already is hovering at around one planet Earth. There are multiple planetary boundaries that have already been breached. So the question is not to dampen down aspiration. The question, the, the, the problem set is how to change aspiration. So we see it in three different ways, nudging, enabling, and then aspiring. How do you nudge individual behavior that shifts towards the sustainable choices? Right? That, as I said, where you are willing to pay that premium for that more sustainable product that is 100% biodegradable and so forth. But those choices are not always easy for consumers or producers. And therefore, you've got to create the market enabling structures. That's the second step. Whether it's a tax incentive here or a taxation or a taxation on the externalities there. And then you've got to change what aspiration itself means. This separation of sacrifice and desire is where we need to go. The challenge we've had with sort of first generational environmentalism is that it is a it is a language of sacrifice that we can't have it all and it is the correct message to an extent because you cannot just promise everybody everything and say there is no pain but at the same time 50 years ago when we first talked about limits to growth the feeling was there is a constraint we are running out of resources Actually, the story is different now. We might be running out of the carbon constraint, but human technology, human-induced technology has taken us so much further that we are in an age not of scarcity, but of abundance. And that is the problem. That we can dig up oil from where we thought it could never come. That we can dig up minerals from wherever we thought it could never come. It's an age not of scarcity, it's an age of abundance. And that is where we've got to delink the growth from this resource-intensive lifestyle. We're going to delink the aspiration from the resource-intensive demand. Not to dampen on aspirations, not to say you will not have a job, not to say your, your life is over. To say there is a different way forward. Now, of course, then you get into much more granular detail about how to make that happen. But that's the decoupling that we need. So last question, and you could also make it your closing remarks, which is how do you see India at 100, uh, you know, globally shaping uh, the, the, the story of sustainability for the planet? I have always believed that climate leadership is not a mantle or crown that's only worn by one country. Uh, but at the same time, I believe that India is at an inflection point, not just transforming its own economy, but 
offering at scale a completely different model of development. As I said earlier, the reason we think that jobs growth and sustainability is an impossible trinity is because no one has done it in the past. We have to show that a different future, a different economic model is possible. That does not mean you have to slow down growth rates. That does not mean you have to give up on investment. That does not mean you have to give up on skills. But you have to ask yourself a simple question. Can you think of a sunrise sector that is not sustainable? I can answer that question with two. Deep sea mining and space tourism. Very high carbon, both of them. But if you set those two aside for a second, you can't make a shirt anymore. You can't make a car anymore. You can't make steel anymore, cement anymore, a building anymore, an air conditioner anymore without asking yourself, is this incrementally more sustainable than the past? And India, because of its scale, because of the speed, because of the skill, can offer that different pathway. You do it in a small city state, well, can't be copied. You do it in a country that can print its own money, well, that's easy for you. India is the laboratory of the world in this experiment because it can't print its money and therefore it has to innovate to use your word very to bring in new investment india cannot manufacture everything so it has to innovate to create a new and be a fulcrum of a new global supply chain of circular economy of minerals and materials india can offer the scale for green hydrogen demand the scale for clean energy the scale for mobility transformation, the scale for new buildings, and yet it can leverage its skills, more of which is needed, and it has to do it at speed. That's really where we speed, scale, skill for jobs, growth, and sustainability. We do that, there will be textbooks written, it'll change economic paradigms, it'll change business models, and we will be not one case study in a Harvard Business Review, we will be the way to move forward. Well, thank you so much, Arunava. I mean, I hope India way is everybody's way uh, because it will only help the planet. But I have learned so much in the past 45 minutes that it's going to take me time to unpack. I'm sure that's true for everybody else who has joined in this live. Um, I only want to say thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your time. And thank you for your ideas for our future because we are, we are only richer because there are people like you, um, you know, leading from the front. And at India at 100, we hope that there are many, many more of people like you to take us into the next century. Thank you so much, Arunava. It has been indeed a pleasure to have you with Thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bhairavi. So kind of you. Very kind with your words. But let's be, let's hope we can use such superlatives for our country soon. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.